0: Welcome to the third episode of the Stories We Tell podcast. I'm your host, Tony Burge. Thank you for joining. Over against this, let us consider abstract man stripped of myth, abstract education, abstract mores, abstract law, government, the random vagaries of the artistic imagination unchanneled by any native myth, a culture without any fixed and consecrated place of origin, condemned to exhaust all possibilities and feed miserably and parasitically on every culture under the sun. Here we have our present age, the result of a Socratism bent on the extermination of myth. Man today stripped of myth, stands famished among all his past and must dig frantically for his roots, be it among the most remote antiquities, What does our great historical hunger signify? Our clutching about us of countless other cultures, our consuming desire for knowledge, if not the loss of myth, of a mythic home, the mythic womb. Art owes its continuous evolution to the Apollonian and Dionysian duality, even as the propagation of the species depends on the duality of the sexes, their constant conflicts and periodic acts of reconciliation. It is by those two art-sponsoring deities, Apollo and Dionysus, that we are made to recognize the tremendous split as regards both to origins and objectives, between the plastic Apollonian arts and the non-visual art of music inspired by Dionysus. The two creative tendencies developed alongside one another, usually in fierce opposition, each by its taunts forcing the other to more energetic production, until at last, by the thaumaturgy of an Hellenic, Hellenic act of will, the pair accepted the yoke of marriage and in this condition begot attic tragedy, which exhibits the salient features of both parents Goldman So does any so does any intelligent child. He will recognize the king by the look in his eye or by his bearing. To put it plainly, you learned men are arrogant. You always think everybody else stupid. One can be extremely intelligent without learning. Narcissus, I am glad that you are beginning to realize that. You'll soon realize, too, that I don't mean intelligence when I speak of the difference between us. I do not say you are more intelligent or less intelligent, better or worse. I merely say you are different. Goldman, that's easy enough to understand, but you don't speak only of our differences in character, you often speak also of the differences in fate and destiny. Why, for instance, should your destiny be any different from mine? We are both Christians. We are both resolved to lead the life of the cloister. We are both children of our good Father in heaven. Our goal is the same eternal bliss. Our destiny is the same the return to God. Narcissus, very good. True. In the view of dogma, one man is exactly like the other, but not in life. Take our Savior's favorite disciple, John, on whose breast he rested his head, and that other disciple who betrayed him. You can hardly say that they had the same destiny. Goldman. Narcissus, you are a sophist. We'll never come together on that kind of road. Narcissus, no road will bring us together. I'm serious. We are not meant to come together. Not any more than the sun and moon were meant to come together, or sea and land. We are sun and moon, dear friend. We are sea and land. It is not our purpose to become each other. It is to recognize each other, to learn to see the other and honor him for what he is, each the other's opposite and complement. Goldman was perplexed. He bowed his head and his face was sad. Finally, he said, Is that why you so often don't take my thoughts seriously? Narcissus hesitated before he answered. His voice was clear and hard when he said yes. That is why I take only you seriously, dear Goldman. You'll have to get used to that. Believe me, there isn't an intonation in your voice, not a gesture, a smile that I don't take seriously, but your thoughts I take less seriously. I take seriously all that I find essential and necessary in you. Why do you want particular attention paid to your thoughts when you have so many other gifts? Look, he said. I am superior to you only in one point. I am awake, whereas you are only half awake or completely asleep sometimes. I call a man awake who knows in his conscious reason his innermost unreasonable force, drives, and weaknesses, and knows how to deal with them. For you to learn that about yourself is the potential reason for you having met me. In your case, mind and nature, consciousness and dream world lie very far apart. You've forgotten your childhood. It cries for you from the depths of your soul. It will make you suffer until you heed it. Oh, how incomprehensible everything was and actually sad. "'although it was all so beautiful. "'One knew nothing. "'One lived and ran about the earth "'and rode through forests "'and certain things looked so challenging "'and promising and nostalgic. "'A star in the evening, "'a blue hair bell, "'a reed-green pond, "'the eye of a person or of a cow. "'And sometimes it seemed "'that something never seen yet long desired "'was about to happen, "'that a veil would drop from it all. "'But then it passed.' Nothing happened, the riddle remained unsolved, the secret spell unbroken, and in the end one grew old. That first excerpt was from Friedrich Nietzsche's work, um, The Birth of Tragedy, and the second quote came from the work we're going to go over this week. Narcissist and Goldman by Herman Hesse. At first glance, Narcissus and Goldman can be can seem to be a rather dry story. Perhaps even after hearing the first two readings, maybe especially because of the Frederick Nietzsche quote, but I it'll make sense why I used it as we go along. Uh, you may have already started to mentally check out. But I encourage you to follow this through, for the lessons taught by Hesse in this work apply to absolutely every thinking person. This is a story, as Hesse often tells, that is meant as a parable or an allegory about the competing impulses in the human brain. What Nietzsche called the Apollonian and Dionysian forces, the logical and the creative, the static and the fluid. This work is about a seeker, which many of us secretly, sometimes, sometimes not so secretly are, who is not quite sure about the decisions he's made thus far in life, and or about the story he's been told about himself, and wants to find the answers, the meaning of life, for himself. This story takes place in medieval Germany. Narcissus is described as an ascetic monk, an intellectual, the epitome of the masculine and analytical mind. Goldman, on the other hand, was taken to the monastery by his father, He never could quite accept the lifestyle, described as a romantic, dreamy, enthusiastic about women, and leaves the monastery to go on a journey to find himself. He represents the artistic, feminine nature. Most of the book revolves around Goldman's journey through medieval Germany, what he sees and experiences. If you've ever read a book by Hesse, for instance, Siddhartha, They all have a similar quality of the vision quest, the leaving to return, the duality of consciousness. Hesse relies heavily on Nietzsche's work, which we quoted from earlier, where he not only discusses the duality of what he called the Apollonian, or what he said the plastic material, and the Dionysian, the unseen, the ideal, um, but also what the destruction of cultural myth of the creative energy driven by the unseen does to the artist and the artist's mind and ultimately to humanity in general. Narcissus and Goldman become friends when Goldman's father drops him off at the monastery. The assumption here is that there were fewer few options for him. Uh, his mother was gone. The story was that she was a heathen, I, I, I believe maybe a gypsy, prostitute, and his father tried to convert her to Christianity, tried to put her on the straight and narrow. She just fought it the entire time, and shortly after he was born, she left, or his father left her, and he had no other family except for his father whenever he was dropped at the monastery as a young boy. Narcissist and Goldman are close in age, but after a few years of mentoring the young boy, the younger boy, Goldman, um, a uh, conversation between the two of them reveals the differences between them, and that was the conversation we quoted earlier. And this follows an episode where Goldman crosses paths with a gypsy who offers her- herself to him, and this is the moment that makes him realize perhaps a life of abstinence and asceticism was not necessarily for him. One of the more powerful parts of the conversation was when Narcissus told Goldman that the fact that he could not remember his childhood prevented him from growing. He said that, you know, you've forgotten your childhood and it cries for you from the depths of your soul. At first glance, it's a very Jungian concept, but more importantly, this represents the moment where Goldman becomes a seeker. Up to this point, he was pretending, for lack of a better word, to be devoted to the cause of the monastery. He was pretending that this was the life he wanted. He was having dreams and visions of his mother, not quite sure why yet. Um, he was getting these signs, for example, the gypsy woman crossing his path. These forces were pulling him from the path that he was currently on that he was not meant to be on. So Narcissus helps him escape, and he leaves the cloister. And so the journey begins. Goldman begins aimlessly, wanders, th- wandering around through medieval Germany. He works as a scribe for a knight who just returned from the Crusades and he wanted Goldman's help to write his autobiography because he can write in Latin. He beds the knight's two daughters and the knight catches wind and forces him to leave. He then meets a man who befriends him. Then he tries to steal from him, which results in a scruff in which Goldman murders the man And has to escape once again. His name was Victor. Then after a street fight with the boyfriend of a lady Goldman was speaking to. So this is all happening very quickly. He goes off on his own. Meets this knight. Falls in love with his two daughters. Sleeps with them. Knight kicks him out. He meets a man named Victor. They hang around for a while. Victor tries to steal from him. He kills him. Then, right after he kills him, he's feeling all this angst, all of this uncertainty. He has a street fight with a boyfriend of a lady he was speaking to, and then he goes off again on his own. So all of this happens very quickly to this guy who has all these dreamy expectations of life on the road, being a wanderer, and in three short scenes, he's beaten down pretty hard. And he found, he eventually finds after this fight, the last fight, a cloister to spend the night in. That evening, he found shelter in a cloister, and the next morning, he went to Mass. A thousand memories welled up in his heart the cool stone air of the dome and the flapping of sandals in the marble corridors felt movingly familiar. After Mass, when the cloister church had grown quiet, Goldman remained on his knees. His heart was strangely moved. He had many dreams of this night. He felt the urge to unburden himself of his past, to change his life somehow. He knew not why. Perhaps it was only the memory of Maria Braun and of his pious youth that moved him. He felt the urge to confess and purify himself. Many small sins, many small vices had to be admitted. But most heavily, he felt burdened by the death of Victor, who had died by his hand. He found a father and confessed to him, especially the knife stabs in poor Victor's neck and back. Oh, how long it had been since he had been to confession. The numbers the number and weight of his sins seemed considerable to him he was willing to do a stiff penance for them but his confessor seemed familiar with the life of the wayfarers he was not shocked he listened calmly earnest and friendly he reprimanded and warned without speaking of damnation While in this cloister, he meets a master craftsman named Nicholas who, after reviewing one of Goldman's drawings, accepts him as an apprentice. So Goldman sees this statue in the monastery where he just gave the confession, asked who made it. He is moved by the creativity, the artistic rendition of this person that was made into a statue. He wants to get to meet this man. He wants to do what he does. So he meets Nicholas who says, okay, make a drawing for me and we'll see what we think. Goldman bowed slightly and went out. It had been an hour or more since the master had seen his drawing and he had not said a word about it. Now he had to wait another half hour. Well, there was nothing he could do about it. He waited. He did not go into the workshop. He did not want to see his drawing again just now. He went into the courtyard, sat down on the edge of the well, and watched the thread of water trickling endlessly from the pipe into the deep stone dish, making tiny waves as it fell, always carrying a little air down with it, which kept rising up in white pearls. He saw his own face in the dark mirror of the well, and thought that Goldman who was looking up at him from the water had long since ceased being the Goldman of cloister days, or Lydia's Goldman, or even the Goldman of the forest. He thought that he, that all men, trickled away, changing constantly, until they finally dissolved, while their artistic created images remained unchangeably the same. He thought that fear of death was perhaps the root of all art, perhaps also, of all things, of the mind. We fear death. We shudder at life's instability. We grieve to see the flowers wilt again and again, and the leaves fall, and in our hearts we know that we, too, are transitory and will soon disappear. When artists create pictures and thinkers search for laws and formulate thoughts, it is in order to salvage something from the great dance of death, to make something that lasts longer than we do. Perhaps the woman after whom the master shaped this beautiful Madonna is already wilted or dead, and soon he too will be dead. Others will live in his house and eat at his table, but his work will still be standing a hundred years from now and longer. It will go on shimmering in the quiet cloister church, unchangingly beautiful, forever smiling with the same sad flowering mouth. Here, too, we get a glimpse of Hesse's theory as to why we as humans are driven to make art. The pursuit of permanence, of a semblance of immortality. This is a theme as old as Homer's Iliad, in which the reason why Achilles fights is to be remembered. We have this, we hear it a lot now, the fancy term is legacy. Wanting to leave a legacy, wanting to make an art so great of out of our lives that we are remembered after we are gone. And the only reason we would really care that we were remembered after we are gone is that it satisfies us in the present because it gives us a feeling of control post-death. It is that drive for immortality, which we cannot attain. Hesse has a way of digesting human emotions and finding the root of certain impulses. In my opinion, there is a very strong case in the argument that art is a response to the finite nature of life. I don't necessarily feel it is only from a fear of death, as Goldman describes in this scene, and as Hesse might believe, but at least for me personally, it also seems to come from an acknowledgement of the finite. The desire to capture moments because we know they are soon to be gone. Not just that life will soon meet its end, ultimately, but that the life of every single moment, that's what, I feel the poets capture, the greatest poets capture, the greatest painters capture, and musicians. They capture moments within the arc of life, of a life. And there's probably a fear in losing the moment or not noticing noticing them. But to say that all art stems from a fear of an ultimate end is a bit of a stretch for me. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So, Goldman after a year of working and becoming very good at the craft finds himself again disenfranchised with the nature of work with the nature of the work of the craftsman what he initially found exciting so the craftsmanship making art the thing that inspired him with such burning inspiration when he walked into the cloister and saw the statue he now began to find mundane and boring pointless This is the ultimate curse of the seeker. Once you become comfortable in an environment, you have to leave. Again, I think a lot more people secretly deal with this kind of thing than will admit to. But I think it's a very human thing. We have these ideas in our head. Once we attain the thing, we realize Eventually, it becomes stale, and we want the new thing, the new thought, the new journey. This comes to a point where Goldman was feeling moody and unable to work again, so he walked the streets and came to a fish market where he is struck with the mindlessness of the humans he met and struggled with the question of whether he would rather be like them completely content with their blissful ignorance or as he was made or be happy with how he was made which results in the artistic creation but there they comes with emotional and mental burdens of their own again every creative person every thoughtful person has had that conversation with themselves wouldn't i rather be happy you know, being blissfully ignorant than being in my own head. Why were people so numb and crude, so unthinkably stupid and insensitive? These people saw nothing, knew nothing, and noticed nothing. Nothing touched them. A poor graceful animal could expire under their eyes, or a master could express all the hope, nobility, and suffering, all the dark, tense anguish of a human life, and the statue of a saint with shudder-inducing tangibility, they saw nothing. Nothing moved them. They were gay. They were busy, important, in a hurry. They shouted, laughed, bumped into each other, made noise, told jokes, screamed over the two pennies, felt fine, were orderly citizens, Highly satisfied with themselves and the world. Pigs, that's what they were. Filthier and viler than pigs. Of course we had only too often been one of them. Had felt happy among them. Had pursued their girls. Had gaily eaten baked fish from his plate without being horrified. But sooner or later, as, th- as though by magic, joy and calm would suddenly de- desert him. All fat, plump illusions. All his self-satisfaction, all self-importance, and idle peace of mind fell away. Something plunged him into solitude and brooding, made him contemplate suffering and death, the vanity of all undertaking, as he stared into the abyss. At other times, a sudden joy blossomed from the hopeless depth of uselessness and horror, a violent infatuation, the desire to sing a beautiful song, to draw, he had only to smell a flower or play with a cat and his childlike agreement with life came back to him. This time, too, it would come back. Tomorrow or the day after, the world would be good again. It would be wonderful. At least it was so until the sadness returned. The brooding, the remorse for dying fish and withering withering flowers, the horror of insensitive pig-like staring but not seeing human existence. It was at such moments that Victor always came to his mind. With torturing curiosity and deep anguish, he would think of the lanky wayfarer whom he had stabbed between the ribs and left lying on pine bows covered with blood. And he wondered what had become of Victor. Had the animals eaten him completely? Had anything remained of him? The bones probably and perhaps a few handfuls of hair? And what would become of the bones? How long was it, decades or just years, until bones lost all their shape and crumbled into the earth? In the middle of these thoughts, Goldman suddenly had a vision. It lasted only an instant, a lightning flash. He saw the face of the universal mother, leaning over the abyss of life with a lost smile that was both beautiful and gruesome. She was looking at birth and death, at flowers, at rustling autumn leaves, at art, at decay. Everything had the same meaning to the universal mother. Her chilling smile hung above everything like a moon, sad and pensive. The dying carp on the cobblestones of the fish market was as dear to her as Goldman. She was, a fa- she was as fond of the scattered bones of the victor who had once tried to steal his gold as she was of the master's proud, cool, young daughter, Lisbeth. The lightning flash was gone. The mysterious mother face had vanished, but the pale glow continued to tremble deep in Goldman's soul. The beat of life, of pain, of longing, agitated at his heart. no. No, he did not want the satiated happiness of the others, of fish vendors, of burgers, of busy people. Let them go to hell. Oh, her twitching pale face, her fully ripe late summer mouth, her heavy lips, on which the immense fatal smile trembled like wind and moonlight. Once Goldman leaves Nicholas, he is confronted with the realities of the Black Plague, which has begun to spread across mainland Europe. He befriends another traveler named Robert, and they find this farm that seems to have been abandoned but has plenty of food, so they stay for a time. And they eventually find the bodies of the former inhabitants, three people, um, most likely dead of the plague. They visit a town that Goldman had previously visited only to find most of the residents piled on top of each other, also victims of the Black Death, which is a haunting scene. He meets Helen, or Lean, who is uh, pregnant and her parents have died, and he invites her to stay with him and Robert and travel with them outside of the town, much to Robert's... uh, Protest, who is worried that she is infected with the plague well they fall in love Goldman and Lean and uh, one night Lean is captured by a man and raped and during which he bites her and then she is indeed infected with the plague which she ultimately becomes another countless victim Goldman said to Lane, "'I'll stay with you. Don't worry. You'll get well again.' She shook her head. "'Be careful, love. Don't catch this sickness, too. You mustn't come so close to me. Don't try so hard to console me. I'm going to die, and I'd rather die than find your bed empty one morning because you have left me. I've thought of it every morning and been afraid of it. No, I'd rather die.' In the morning, she was extremely weak. Goldman had given her sips of water from time to time and napped a little in between. Now in the growing light, he recognized the sign of approaching death in her face. It looked so wilted and flabby. For a moment, he stepped outside to get some air and looked at the sky. A few bent red fir trunks at the edge of the forest shone with the first sweet rays of the sun. The air tasted fresh and sweet. The distant hills were were still shrouded in morning clouds. He walked a few steps, stretched his tired legs, and breathed deeply. The world was beautiful this morning. He'd probably soon be back on the road. It was time to say goodbye. Robert called to him from the forest. Was she better? If it wasn't the plague, he'd stay. Goldman shouldn't be angry with him. He had watched the sheep in the meantime. Go to hell you and your sheep, Goldman shouted over him. Lean is dying and I too am infected. This was a lie. He had said it to get rid of Robert. He might well be he might be a well-meaning man but Goldman had had enough of him. He was too cowardly for him, too petty. He had no place in this fateful shocking scene. Robert vanished and did not return. The sun shone brightly. When Goldman came back to Lean, she lay asleep. He, too, fell asleep once more, and in his dream he saw his old horse, Bless, and the beautiful chestnut tree at the cloister. He felt as though he were gazing back upon his lost and beautiful home from an infinitely remote, deserted region, and when he woke, tears were running down his blonde-bearded cheeks. He heard Lean speak in a weak voice. He thought she was calling out to him, so he sat up on his bed, but she was speaking to no one. She was stammering words, love words, curses, a little laugh, and began to heave deep sighs and swallow. Gradually she fell silent again. Goldman got up and bent over her already disfigured face. With bitter curiosity his eyes retraced the lines that scalding breath of death was so miserably distorting and muddying. Dear Lean called his heart, Dear Sweet Child, You too already want to leave me. Have you already had enough of me? He would have liked to run away, to wander, roam, run, breathe the air, grow tired, see new images. It would have done him good. It might perhaps have got him over his deep melancholy, but he could not leave now. It was impossible for him to leave the child to lie there alone and dying. He recalled the dying fish he had so often pitied in the market. They had died in just that way, with a quiver, a soft, woeful shudder that ran over their skin and extinguished luster and life. For a while he knelt beside Lane. Then he went out and sat down in the bushes. He remembered the goat and walked back into the hut and let the animal out, after straying a short distance, it lay down on the ground. He lay down beside it, his head on its flank, and slept until the day grew bright. Then he went into the hut for the last time, stepped behind the braided wall, and looked for the last time at the poor dead face. It did not feel right to him to let the dead woman lie there. He went out, filled his arms with dry wood and underbrush, and threw it into the hut. Then, struck, then he struck fire. The smoke of the fire followed him into the forest. Never before had he felt so disconsolate setting out on a journey. He then arrives at another town, which had begun persecuting its Jewish population, blaming them for the Black Death, which was a common reaction in all of Europe. He meets and falls in love with a Jewish woman named Rebecca, And has a moment in an empty church where, in which all of the priests and bishops have either died, are dying, or have escaped. And this is his ultimate moment of doubt and struggling with the contrast of love and death of his faith and what he sees in the real world. There were a number of confessionals in the church, but no priest. They had died, or they lay in the hospital, or they had fled for the fear of contamination. The church was empty. Goldman's steps echoed hollow under the stone vault. He knelt before an empty confessional, closed his eyes, and whispered into the grill, Dear God, see what has become of me. I have returned from the world. I have become an evil, useless man. I have squandered my youth like a spendthrift and little remains. I have killed, I have stolen, I have whored, I have gone idle and have eaten the bread of others. Dear Lord, why did you create us thus? Why do you lead us along such roads? Are we not your children? Did your sons not die for us? Did your son not die for us? And there, are there no saints and angels to guide us? Or are they all pretty, invented stories that we tell our children, at which priests themselves laugh? I have come to doubt you, Lord. You have ill-created the world. You are keeping it in bad order. I have seen houses and streets littered with corpses. I have seen the rich barricade themselves and their houses or flee. And the poor let their brothers lie unburied, each suspicious of the other. They slaughter the Jews like cattle. I have seen many innocent people suffer and die, and many a wicked man swim in prosperity. Have you completely forgotten and abandoned us? Are you completely disgusted with your creation? Do you want us all to perish? With a sigh he stepped out through the high portal, and saw the silent statues, angels and saints, stand haggard and tall in their stiffly folded gowns, immobile, inaccessible, superhuman, and yet created by the hands and mind of man. Strict and deaf, they stood there in their narrow niches, inaccessible to any request or question, and yet they were an infinite consolation a triumphant victory over death and despair as they stood in their dignity and beauty, surviving one dying generation of men after another. Ah, poor beautiful Rebecca should be up there too, and poor Lean, who had burned with their hut, and graceful Lydia, and master Nicholas. One day they would stand up there and endure forever. We would put them there, these figures that meant love and torture to him today. Fear and passion would stand before later generations, nameless, without history, silent symbols of human life. Goldman continues to struggle with the fact that life seems to give him two choices either pursuing pleasure. That brightest flame burns the quickest lifestyle. Or, or choose a life of sheltered, protected, however prolonging and preserving life. It was shameless how life made fun of one. It was a joke, a cause for weeping. Either one lived and let one's senses play Drank full at the primitive mother's breast, which brought great bliss, but was no protection against death. Then one lived like a mushroom in the forest, colorful today and rotten tomorrow. Or else one put up a defense, imprisoned oneself for work, and tried to build a monument to the fleeting passage of life. Then one renounced life, was nothing but a tool. One enlisted in the service of of that which endured. But one dried up in the process and lost one's freedom, scope, and lust for life. That's what happened to Master Nicholas. Ach, life made sense only if one achieved both. Only if it was not split by this brittle alternative. To create without sacrificing one's senses for it. To live without renouncing the nobility of creating. Was that impossible? Perhaps there were people for whom this was possible perhaps there were husbands and heads of families who did not lose their sensuality by being faithful perhaps there were people who though settled did not have hearts dried up by the lack of freedom and lack of risk perhaps he had never met one all existence seemed to be based on duality on contrast either one was a man or one was a woman either a wanderer or a sedentary burger either a thinking person "'or a fleeing per- feeling person. "'No one could breathe in at the same time as he breathed out. "'Be a man as well as a woman. "'Experience freedom as well as order. "'Combine instinct and mind. "'One always had to pay for the one with the loss of the other. "'And one thing was always just as important and desirable as the other. "'Perhaps women had it easier in this respect. "'Nature had created them in such a way that desire bore its fruit automatically.' "'that the bliss of love became a child. "'For a man, eternal longing replaced this simple fertility. "'Was the God who had created everything in this manner an evil God? "'Was he hostile? "'Did he laugh ironically at his own creation? "'No, he could not be evil. "'He had created the heart and the roebuck, "'fish and birds, forests, flowers, the seasons, "'but the split ran through his entire creation.' Perhaps it was not turned out right or was incomplete, or did God intend this lack, this longing in human life, for a special purpose? Was this, perhaps, the seed of the enemy, of original sin? But why should this longing and this lack be sinful? Did not all that was beautiful and holy, all that man created and gave back to God as a sacrifice of thanks, spring from this very lack, from this longing? Goldman then returns to Master Nicholas's house to find that he has died from the plague. He meets a woman named Agnes. They fall in love. Unfortunately, she is claimed she is the girlfriend of the commander of the town, and so when he finds out that Goldman has been making moves towards her, he sentences Goldman to death by hanging. Goldman is given a final confession. He goes to the confessional. To find that serendipitously, his old pal Narcissus, who is a priest, who is the priest that he is confessing to, he finds out that that is him, and allow, and Narcissus allows him to be freed, and he returns to the monastery to work as a craftsman. Ultimately, Goldman grows weary and or restless once more. He leaves, and then returns. But this time is different. His final return. He had fallen from his horse, broke multiple ribs, and has a pain in his chest which he did not get properly addressed in time and it has left him a shell of his former self. So we have this Goldman, this vibrant, vivacious, seeker of pleasure and experience now incapacitated by life, by the very body which he fed continuously every imaginable type of desire. Do you think constantly of death? Asked Narcissus. Yes, I think of it, and... Of what has become of my life. As a young man, when I was still your pupil, I wished to become as spiritual as you were. You showed me that I had no calling for it. Then I threw myself into the other side of life, into the world of the senses, and women made it easy for me to find my joys there. They are so greedy and willing. But I don't wish to speak disdainfully of them, or of the joy of the joys of the senses. I have often been extremely happy and i was also fortunate enough in my experiences to learn that sensuality can be given a soul of it art is born but now both flames have died out in me i no longer have the animal happiness of ecstasy and i wouldn't want it now even if the women were still running after me and to create works of art and to create works of art is no longer my wish either I've made enough statues The number does not matter Therefore it is time for me to die I am ready I am curious about it Father Anton thinks You must often be in great pain How do you bear it so calmly, Goldman? It seems to me you have found peace now do you mean peace with God? No. That peace I have not found. I don't want any peace with him. He has made the world badly. We don't need to praise it, and he'll care little whether I praise him or not. He has made the world badly, but I have made peace with the pain in my chest. Yes, in my former days I was not good at bearing pain. And although I sometimes thought dying would come easily to me, I was wrong. When death was so near me that night in Count Heinrich's prison, I saw that I simply could not face it. I was still much too strong and too wild to die. They would have had to break each one of my bones twice, but now it is different. He then confesses that when he had left that final time, When he was growing restless again, he left to meet Agnes once more. Um, But when he saw her, she was no longer attracted to him. And this itself caused an epiphany. And this is Goldman speaking. Narcissus. She no longer wanted to have anything to do with me. I was too old for her. I was no longer pretty enough, amusing enough. She no longer wanted anything from me. That actually was the end of my journey, but I rode on. I didn't want to come back to you so disappointed and ridiculous, and as I rode along, force and youth and intelligence had already completely abandoned me because I stumbled into a gully with my horse and fell into a stream and broke several several ribs and lay there hopeless in the water. That's when I first learned about real pain. As I fell, I felt something break inside my chest, and the breaking pleased me. I was glad to hear it. I was content with it. I lay there in the water and knew that I was about to die. But everything was completely different from that night in the Count's prison. I had nothing against it. Dying no longer seemed terrible to me. I felt those violent pains, which I've, which I've often had since then, and with them, had a dream or a vision, whatever you want to call it. I lay there and had burning pains in my chest, and I was defending myself against them and screaming when I heard a laughing voice, a voice I had not heard since childhood. It was my mother's voice, a deep, womanly voice full of ecstasy and love and then I saw that it was she that that was with me holding me in her lap and that she had opened my breast and put her fingers between my ribs to pluck out my heart when I saw and understood that it no longer hurt and now when the pains come back they are not pains they are not my enemies they are my mother's fingers taking my heart out She worked hard at it. Sometimes she presses down and moans as though in ecstasy. Sometimes she laughs and hums tender sounds. Sometimes she is not with me, but high above in heaven, and I see her face among the clouds, as large as a cloud. She floats there smiling sadly, and her sad smile pulls at me and draws my heart out of my chest. Again and again he spoke of his mother, Do you remember, he murmured, on one of the last days. I had completely forgotten my mother until you conjured her up again. That day, too, it hurt very much, as though animal jaws were tearing at my intestines. We were still young then, pretty boys, but even then my mother called me and I had to follow. She is everywhere. She was Lise the Gypsy. She was Master Nicholas's beautiful Madonna, She was life, love, ecstasy. She also was fear, hunger, instinct. Now she is death. She has her fingers in my chest. Don't speak so much, my dear friend, said Narcissus. Wait until tomorrow. With his new smile, Goldman looked into Narcissus' eyes. With the smile that he had brought back from his journey. The smile that looked... At times so old and fragile. A little senile, perhaps. And then again, like pure kindness and wisdom. My dear friend, he whispered, I cannot wait until tomorrow. I must say farewell to you now. And as we part, I must tell you everything. Listen to me another moment. I wanted to tell you about my mother and how she keeps her fingers clasped around my heart. For many years, it has been my most cherished, my secret dream to make a statue of the mother. She was, to me, the most sacred of all all of my images. I have carried her always inside of me, a figure of love and mystery. Only a short while ago, it would have been unbearable to me to think that I might die without having carved her statue, and my life would seem useless to me. And now... See how strangely things have turned out. It is not my hands that shape and form her. It is her hands that shape and form me. She is closing her fingers around my heart. She is loosening it. She is emptying me. She is seducing me into dying. And with me dies my dream. The beautiful statue. The image of the great mother, Eve. I can still see it. And if I had force in my hands, I could carve it. But she doesn't want that. She doesn't want me to make her secret visible. She rather wants me to die. I'm glad to die. She is making it easy for me. Deeply shaken, Narcissus listens to his words. He had to bend close to his friend's lips to be able to understand what they were saying. Some words he heard only indistinctly. Others he heard clearly, but their meaning escaped him. And now the sick man opened his eyes again and looked for a long while in his friend's face. He said farewell with his eyes, and with a sudden movement, as though he were trying to shake his head, he whispered, But how will you die when your time comes, Narcissus, since you have no mother? Without a mother, one cannot love. Without a mother... One cannot die. There are a few constant themes running through this work. As we discussed in the beginning, Goldman represents the feminine nature, creativity. This is an easy parallel. Women create life. That's why we call it Mother Earth. And why Goldman has a particular fascination with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as having visions of his own mother. This, of course, is connected to the fact that he lost his mother at a young age, which left an unfillable gap in his heart, which haunted him throughout his life and became the symbol of life and death. He saw her when things were great. He saw her when things were at their worst. But, of course, the mother in this story is the creative impulse. That's driving him. Um, in in the symbol. It is the symbol. So his mom that he lost in childhood. It, it brings us back to that. You know you think of that golden age of childhood. Where everything seemed great. Everything. You were just bursting. With this life force. This creative energy. That is what. Goldman is seeking. To grasp again. Through his journey. That that incredible creative energy just bursting out of every pore of his being. That is what he is chasing, and that in this story is what is the mother, the feminine nature. Uh, Narcissus was content with being single-minded, with being purely of the spirit of the mind. Goldman's curse was that he was constantly trying to bridge the two. Uh, which goes back again to what we discussed in the beginning, Nietzsche's theory of tragedy, it being the attempt to combine the Apollonian and Dionysian impulses. It's interesting, though, that in the beginning, Narcissus explains to Goldman that because he is the way he is, he is not a complete person. You know, he, he, his thoughts are not serious, just his actions. And then in the end, we find that it is actually Goldman who has become the closest of the two. Goldman dies never completing the masterpiece which which is meant to extend his name forever and the symbol of the mother. But he resigns himself to this fact and is content. The idea being that one can never fully be both mind and body, both physical and spiritual, and that life itself is a struggle between those two, the logical and the romantic, the creative and the structure. Goldman was really only able to find peace in death when he realized that to create, one must be struggling with the two impulses, and it was the struggle that sent him on his journey. And he finishes by urging Narcissus to find his mother, which is described as terrifying Narcissus. It burns him. Meaning, how can you die content only knowing half of yourself? Again, Narcissus at first was criticizing Goldman for his lack, for what he was lacking. And then in the end, on his deathbed, Goldman Ask narcissus how can you possibly die, having only known one part of your entire self? Goldman realizes that the mother in this case, the creative impulse, the life force, was never, never wanted him to finish the work because finishing is not the point. We are not meant to be completely fulfilled. Why? Because then there would be no journey. This echoes that old saying that the journey is the destination. We are never meant to stop seeking. And when the goal is mistaken for the end, we become blind to the larger gift. And in the end, Narcissus had more seeking left to do. And as seekers, that's what we are all left with. Thank you so much for following along. Hopefully the story spoke to you in some way. And Please comment, share, and just let me know what you thought of the episode, what you liked, disliked, what your opinions on the book and the themes we dis- it discusses. Um, let me know what you thought of it, what you got from it. Uh, read it if you haven't read it, and let me know what things that I might have skipped over quickly that you thought should have been emphasized more I always find the discussion interesting Um, and please share with anyone that you think might be interested share on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter whatever you usually use I have the link on my Facebook and Instagram bio that connects to Podbean which is my hosting site but it's also on iTunes, Stitcher and a few other podcasting sites that are pretty popular so um, just get on there, share it, like it comment, subscribe, subscribing helps a lot. So if you like the episodes and you just want to be reminded that the new one's out, subscribe and it'll show up on your feed. Um, So thank you again. Thank you for joining along and I'll see you soon.